Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So today is a special episode, and because of that, I'm not, you're off the hook, Samantha. I'm not going to ask a big question of the day, but I, w- I have so many. And- uh, you have the best questions, um, and usually somewhat related as opposed to my questions, which is, I'm just hungry, so let's talk about food. So, I'm into okay. that, too. <laughs> I can't, I, I love your questions, but All yes, right. keep it on going. Yes. We do have a very special episode because it's time for another Sminty Book Club. And today we are talking about Nicole Chung's 2018 book, All You Can Ever Know, a memoir, which was a suggestion by Samantha. Yes. It tells the story of Chung's experience with transracial adoption as a Korean who was adopted into a white Catholic family and raised in a very white town. The title refers to something her adoptive mother told her about her adoption and her birth family that it may be all you can ever know. And it deals with themes of family, identity, adoption, and all of the complexities within those things. Yeah, and today is a special one because we got to have an interview with the author. It was such a great interview, um, yes. and I loved every moment of it. So thank you, Nicole. Uh, but stick around for that because it is a big portion of the show. We talk about this book in depth and just kind of the the behind the scenes and just kind of some of the thought processes with it. Yes, yes. Um, but briefly, we did want to give an overview. The plot essentially follows Chung throughout her life growing up in Yes, a religious family that believed her to be a gift from God through adulthood and her decision to seek out her birth parents as she starts a family of her own. Her first pregnancy is intertwined with her making contact with her birth family. Right. So as a child, when Chung asked about her adoption, her parents always told her the same story, a series of events that were the will of God that led them to finding her and adopting her. Uh, And she was born premature, so that is a big portion of the plot. 
in her life. Is that, is that how I would say that? It's strange to think of someone's <laughs> life as a plot, but a plot. I, said, I mean, every, everyone's life is a stage, you know? Right. <laughs> so the adoption happened very quickly, and it was a closed adoption, which meant that legally the birth parents were not supposed to make contact with the birth child or the family. Right. Chung's time in school was marked by loneliness and isolation. Um, the only She was the only non-white child in her class. Her adoptive parents were colorblind, which is a term you probably recognize if you've been listening to our previous uh, book clubs, but also just, you know, paying attention to what's all the conversations happening right now. Um, and in that way, they did not give her the tools to talk about racism or even really understand it and her experiences with it. Uh, she writes about how in many ways her adoptive parents were unprepared to raise a Korean child. They also didn't have many answers for Chung when she asked for any information about her birth family. So this led her to wonder why her birth family gave her up, if she mattered to them at all, what were they like, if they thought about her at all. She went searching for any information she could find in in her house, and she discovered a letter indicating her birth mother had reached out to her and her adoptive parents had not told her. So some of the chapters are actually told from the point of view of Cindy, who we find out as the book goes on is Nicole's birth sister. Their birth parents had told Cindy and um, their other half-sister, Jessica, that Nicole had died at birth. As Nicole gets older, she becomes sort of an adoption ambassador, although it's kind of a theme throughout her life, collecting stories and answering questions for people who are looking at transracial adoption, and in doing so, starts arriving at questions of her own. She meets her husband and becomes pregnant, and the questions get louder when she realizes she can't really fill out the medical history. She starts the process of reaching out to them, filing paperwork, getting scraps of information as her pregnancy progresses, until just as her child is born, she hears from her birth father and learns she has a birth sister, Cindy, who was abused by her birth mother. Cindy and her birth mother are estranged, and her birth parents are divorced. Um, Nicole also learns that, yes, she has this stepsister. Uh, her birth father expressed regret at putting her up for adoption, explaining that her birth mother had wanted a boy, that they didn't have the money for a sick child, as Nicole was expected to be, and later that she was abusive, and he believed adoption to be the best thing for Nicole. So this clashed with the story Chung had told herself about her birth family. Um, and now it was complicated with abuse and concerns that she was unprepared to be a mother herself. But it's a beautiful story because she starts a relationship with Cindy, her sister. One that goes on to be close and loving. Um, it starts from emails and to shared photos to phone calls and eventually meeting in person and sharing their lives with each other. And she does go on to form a tentative relationship with her birth father and his new wife, um, a relationship she does not keep from her adoptive parents. And it's really beautifully written and moving. And um, as I was reading it, Samantha, I've heard echoes of so many things you've told me that you've shared right. with me. And um, I, it's also so relatable to anyone um, because I related to it too. and. During this interview that we're about to share, it was really beautiful for me to kind of just sit back and listen to you bond and and have this more in-depth conversation because you do have those shared experiences. And and Nicole is very clear that you can't, like everybody's experience is different to their own mm-hmm. life, but there are just certain circumstances um, that even though I can relate to, it was really lovely for me to to kind of sit back and let you have that space 
let you both have that lovely conversation. Uh, I will say, yeah, our stories, definitely the beginning. And she talks a little bit about um, origin stories and the beginnings. Um, Though it was different for her and I, she had the unusual circumstance of being born in the U.S. and her biological parents being immigrants in the U.S. and then being adopted after the fact, as opposed to where I was adopted from Korea while I was at an orphanage and was at a young age, six, seven years old, before I came to the U.S. So that was different. But the whole internal monologue that she had growing up and seeing her differences with uh, the rest of our community was so familiar and so too real and vivid for me that it was really nice to have a moment just kind of dissecting which what each other had experienced almost around the same time because she and I are similar in age, but she was in closer to Mm Portland-ish and I was in Georgia, but having that similarity with very different atmospheres, it was comforting at the same time. It was very shockingly honest. Yeah, yeah. And we're so, so glad um, that she reached out and we were able to do this interview. So without further buildup, let's get into the interview. But first, let's get into a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So let's take it away. 
So we have someone very special here today for our little book club. I shouldn't say little, should I? For our gigantic book club um, yeah. with our peoples, with our Sminty peoples. Um, we have Nicole Chung, author of All You Can Ever Know. Yay! I'm very excited about this. So welcome, Nicole. Yes, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. Um, I'm not going to lie, when we started talking about our next book, I was very excited to pick this one up because obviously this is very personal for me as an adoptee from Korea. So all my Korean people, yeah. Um, so having you even respond when I put up our post about our book club made me so excited. And so we want to thank you for taking the time to sit down. Because we we're sitting down on the interwebs, right? Is This is what it's called. <laughs> the virtual sit-down, yeah. <laughs> and talking with us about your book. So if you don't mind, can you introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about your book? Sure. Uh, so my name is Nicole Chung. I'm the author of the memoir, All You Can Ever Know. It's my first book. Uh, I'm also the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine. And I, I grew up in Oregon, a small town, very white in Southern Oregon. I tell people it's like five hours from Portland and six hours from San Francisco. Just to give you a sense, it is truly in the middle of nowhere. And the book is about growing up adopted in a white family in a very like white community, and uh, what happened when I grew up and decided to search for my Korean birth family as an adult. Um, and this was a search that coincided with the birth of my first child. So, I mean, it was, it was very strange to have those two things happening at the same time. Like the family was just changing in, in so many ways and really like being redefined for me. So I, uh, I wanted to write about it. And that's where this book came from. Even though your story and my story are fairly different, it was so comforting to see us having the similar um, conversations and similar thought process, especially when we were children. Um, you, you talk a lot about in your book about realizing that you are different and having, we always know because obviously white, Korean, that's an obvious, um, but having people say it to our faces and, and instead of being in our comfort zone with our family where we're isolated and being told, you know, you're a part of the family, you're a part of the family, which is nice to hear, but then coming outside of that, having mean little children... <laughs> Yeah. say things that you don't want to talk about. You're like, what the hell did you just say to me? And and yeah, not not even just getting it from kids, but from adults. I mean, like, right. I don't want to like make assumptions about your experience, but like I write about in the book, I mean, we had exchanges in the grocery store with total strangers and right. it would come up with like substitute teachers calling role. So it was definitely like this thing that was a just a constant source of questioning and conversation and sometimes in ways that felt really intrusive, you know, mm -hmm. from people of all ages, like throughout my childhood. And as you point out, like, it's so different, the difference between, like, knowing, of course, you look different from your family, and then like, going out of that safe space, if your home is a safe space, like, going out into the world and, and suddenly realizing, like, I'm also different from all these people, <laughs> and, right. like, having them call attention to it in different ways. Right. Um, and I did want to ask you, because obviously, for me, it, it, it was very personal and very vulnerable to see it in writing in someone else's experience. Why do you think it is important that you shared your story and your experiences? Oh, gosh. I mean, I just think we need more adoption stories by adoptees in general. I mean, certainly not just mine. And it's not alone. There are definitely others out there that I think it's in dialogue with. But like, by and large, the sort of mainstream conversation, like discourse, I know we have probably like a love-hate relationship with that word. But the narrative, like the, the overall mainstream adoption narrative, I think is so 
dominated by like adoptive parents um, who tend to be white when like most people in this country who are adopted, at least a lot of us are people of color. There's a lot of like industry voices, like adoption professionals. There's lawyers, you know, you've got social workers, you've got everybody in the mix. And sometimes it feels like the voices that are missing are really the voices of the adoptees for whom it is like a deeply personal lived experience. And I wanted to tell this story, you know, not because I think it's like representative at all of like all adoption stories, all transracial adoptees, not even all Korean adoptees. In fact, for various reasons, my situation is really atypical because I wasn't actually born in Korea. My birth parents were immigrants. But, you know, I just really feel strongly that like we need more stories by adoptees out there. You know, and I read so many books as a kid, like in some cases looking for myself uh, or families like mine or just like multicultural, multiracial families in general. And I think it's getting better, but there certainly weren't like, you know, there certainly wasn't the volume of those types of stories that I would have wanted growing up and coming of age and even moving into adulthood. So, I mean, I just hoped that it would be one more addition to different genres that I think need expanding. I mean, I was in college before I read my first memoir by an Asian American woman. And so I think, I think there's just like a lot of space for like a lot of different types of stories. And it's, it's just one more that I hope means something to people. But that's the thing is like, it's not one more, it's one added because there's not enough representation in general. So we have representation, but it's already so small for women of color and specifically Asian women. But then even talking about the dichotomy of being an adoptee is even smaller and almost uh, fetishized in a weird <laughs> weird savior way that you needed a breakdown. And I I think I really appreciated how open and vulnerable you were and willing to talk about those situations. Um, But I did want to come back because you are a writer. You're not (laughs) just, you know, this Korean girl chugging about. You're a writer. You're into, and you've been a writer, it sounds like, since you were a child. Like, you're talking about how you had to make up your own worlds and create your own characters so you felt represented, so you created it. Um, For this book and for writing in general, what is your process in writing? Oh my gosh. I barely remember having a writing process, if I'm really honest. (laughs) There are also huge swaths of this book I don't remember writing. Like, I swear I did, but like, it's just kind of a big blur. Mm -hmm. You know, I started it in like the months right before and then right after the 2016 election. Like, there were, it wasn't a great time. I mean, this is not a great time, but that was also not a great time. I remember putting it down for three months and like barely opening it. And feeling like every time I opened it, oh, this doesn't matter, and like kind of closing it. So, I mean, it's always kind of a fraught process. I've got two (laughs) kids. I've got a full-time job. And so a lot of this was just kind of crammed in the margins. I mean, I would write like every evening for months on end. I would spend at least half the weekend like writing lots of days. My husband would take the kids out of the house like on a Saturday. They'd be gone all day. I don't know what they did. They would come back (laughs) at night. I'd be in the same position. He'd be like, did you eat? Did you drink? Like, have you moved? Mm -hmm. And I so, you know, I so appreciated that I got that space at all. But it was, it was definitely not like this, like beautiful, tranquil writing process with a lot of space and a lot of time. There were no like playlists or candles burning. It was very much just like, you know, oh my God, I have 30 minutes. I better really use this 30 minutes. But like, I mean, it is more involved in that. Like there, there was definitely like some, I, I mean, I outlined it before a little bit. Because I, I had to to sell it. I mean, mm-hmm. if I'm honest, I don't know if I would have outlined it otherwise. Mm-hmm. It wound up looking really different than my outline. But I think if you can if you can outline a project, you know you can kind of write that project. 
turns out your high school teacher was sort of right about that. So, <laughs> I mean, that helped me um, getting, like at a certain point, getting reads from friends or family really helped. You know, people always have, especially when you write a memoir, lots of questions about like how your family read, if they read, how they weighed in, all of that, um, which we could talk about if, if you find it interesting. But I mean, that was also part of my process. It was figuring right. out who to invite in and when, and then mm-hmm. like how to incorporate those things in. But yeah, it was just a lot of like, Mining memories. It was a fair amount of interviewing also uh, family members just to make sure I got my facts right. And like looking back, I was fortunate to have certain sources, like not just family lore or interviews, but like I've journaled my whole life, you know, so Mm -hmm. I had like these really detailed entries from around the time I was searching. You know, I kept a journal specifically about my search for my birth family. So I had like, in some cases, whole conversations like written down verbatim, which is great because I wrote this book uh, quite a few years after it happened. So I was really fortunate to have that. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's a little bit about process, but truly so much of it is always just like sitting down and forcing yourself to use the time that you have Mm -hmm. and, and giving yourself breaks to know when you need to take a step back and actually think about a problem. Like Mm -hmm. there are definitely issues that come up writing where it doesn't matter how long you sit and stare, like at the at the words on the screen, you might just need to step back and get some space and, and think about it without that pressure. Yeah. Annie, are you taking notes? Annie's our writer. <laughs> oh, she, has yeah. fan, she's a, she loves to write fan fiction. And she's, yeah. a, I think she's oh. really good at it. I, she won't let me read it yet, but... Um, so <laughs> My fan fiction would destroy you. <laughs> and I say that, it's <laughs> devastating. She likes tragedy. I do. But yeah, so... And I love how you said that you you have to take a step back. And I'm just wondering for writing a memoir, because as a writer, I'm sure you're you're writing into a world of fiction as well as as memoirs and such. Is is their process different? Is it how do you do it in a healthy manner? Because I can't imagine trying to uh, process some of the life experiences and I'm sure sure traumas that's within that. How do you process and do that? It's funny, when I started this book, I really thought I had done all the processing that there was to do, or at least like 90% of it. I was like, and I I was very consciously like not writing for, say, catharsis or Mm -hmm. like I wasn't writing to process. Certainly writing helps with that. But by the time I decided to publish like about it and have it be hopefully like read by others, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about like, what, what does the reader need to know? Like what do they need to know to understand the stakes? Like, what will they pull from this? What will they take away? Because when you write a memoir, like, it's not really about you anymore. It is, like, so much about the reader. Like, what relationship will they have to it? You're hoping it's a good story, like, first and foremost, that it actually draws people in and they want to keep reading. But then, like, beyond that, you know, with memoir, I think memoir is a form that justifies itself by, like, through the question, like, what is in this for someone else? Like, what can someone else who's not you who's not deeply already like intimate with your experience. Like what do they get out of it? So I was, I was thinking about that a lot. Like what does the writer need to understand? Like in order to care about this, in order to like Mm -hmm. maybe reconsider some ideas they might have about adoption or about Mm -hmm. like, you know, transracial adoption specifically or about like multicultural, multiracial families like mine and families that are built like not just through like marriage, birth, but also adoption. Mm-hmm. Like, what do they need to know to really like get the story, uh, mm-hmm. and to maybe reexamine some of their ideas about it? So that was like very much what I was thinking, and and I think I also, again, like because it is so personal, and also because there were so many people in the story whose like stories overlapped with mine. I was thinking um, 
you know, hopefully not in like a censoring way, but just like a realistic way, how I'm going to portray people as like fully human and complex and in a respectful way, even if they make choices that are clearly like questionable or choices that like are fine, but aren't what I would have done, you know, like making room for, for the humanity of every other person in the story. I think that was also something that I thought about and like worried about, to be honest, a lot. Right. And that actually brings me to uh, one of the quotes you read in your, one of your interviews. You, you write, it took so long for me to realize that love for my family didn't have to mean staying silent and that I had a right to my anger. And for me as an adoptee, I always have a fear that saying I wasn't the perfect happy orphan adoptee um, would cause hurt and have a lot of backlash um, in being completely honest. For And for you to write about it's such an inspiration. Again, like I say in this article, when you say that, um, you talk about how important it is to listen to the, quote, uncomfortable stories mm-hmm. of adoptions as well as the good, happy ending ones. What advice do you have for people who are scared to tell that uncomfortable story? Because you even talk about getting an email being accused of being ungrateful, which oh, yeah. I've heard Happens so a lot. much. Yeah, I've heard that too. And I'm like, oh my God, please know I love my family. But it happened. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and things were handled wrong. And I'm growing from it. And I'm still, tra- like, again, I'm still damaged by it. And I'm trying to unravel some things. But what is your advice for people who are scared to talk about it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess the first thing, I'm an editor myself. Like, that's my day job. And I love it. I love working with writers. It's a great, like, privilege to get to do that. I think, like, I never want a writer regardless of their background or experience, to feel like they owe the world, like, their trauma or their, um, you know, the the hardest, darkest moments. It takes, like, certain things have to happen to you, like, as a person and then as a writer to get to a point where you want to tell those stories. And I guess the first thing I would say is you don't have to, like, if you're not ready, especially if you're not ready to do it publicly. Because, like, Mm -hmm. as we all know, there's such a difference between, like, working on stuff yourself or working on it with your family. And that's Mm -hmm. hard enough. And then, like, to take that and, like, bring it into at least some part of it into a public sphere. It's not for everybody. It shouldn't have to be for everybody. I am like super grateful when writers are willing to do that because I've learned so much as a reader by like reading outside my experience, right? So, but like you have to balance like what is good for you personally and your family and those relationships and then like what could help others. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's the first thing is that you don't owe it to anybody. But if you want to, and like plenty, plenty of people do, uh, and I've been asked by some, plenty of adoptees, like who are trying to figure out ways to tell these stories. Like, I mean, I think just recognizing again that like, it's hard if if writing is going to be your catharsis or like your only catharsis. So I would say like making sure you've already done the work and like, you know, you have a good support system. I don't like tell people you should go to therapy, but like God knows we could all benefit from therapy. <laughs> like thank God for therapy. So I, I mean, I, and I did, I, I mean, I went to, I went to therapy as I wrote about in the book, like as a transracial adoptee, like at the age of seven, eight, nine. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, I haven't like been in continuously my whole life, but like, I was really glad I was lucky to have at that young age, like an adoption competent therapist definitely have run into some who aren't as knowledgeable about it. So I mean, to the extent that, like, people want to write about it, I would just, like, see, like, how, like, are you really okay? Are you ready to do this? And I, I try not to have that sound condescending, like, because mm-hmm. you can be in the midst of real trauma and still be ready to write about it, you know? Right. Like, that's not a call I can make. But for me, like, there's a reason that, like, my search 
happened when it did and this book was published like almost 10 years later. Like I couldn't actually, I told you I journaled about it and that was for me, that was kind of processing catharsis, but like I could not have written this book while it was happening. It would have Mm -hmm. been like too soon. (laughs) Right. So I think just being really honest about where you are and, and knowing like if you're emotionally, psychologically ready for that are like other things. And then my like my other big thing was just making sure in terms of my family and those relationships, I did not want the first time they ever learned that I had a particular issue or problem or like, you know, baggage. I didn't want them to learn about it in an interview, in my book, in an essay. Like I wanted us to have had that discussion first. So, I mean, this was a privilege I had because I wasn't estranged from them because my parents like did love me. I think it wasn't easy, but we were able to eventually have enough conversations where I felt like, okay, maybe parts of the book would still be hard for them, or maybe they wouldn't mm-hmm. agree with other parts, but like, it wouldn't be a shock. Like we would have, we would have done that work already as a family. Right. And I kind of felt that with my sister too. And like other people in the story, just like, yeah, if, if people were in the book, you know, if, if I'm in touch with them, have a relationship with them, like I wanted them to not be surprised by, mm. by what was shared. That was just like a very important sort of ground rule for me. I love that. I feel like that advice uh, is pretty much covers for anyone who's trying to write a memoir (laughs) in general, especially if it's traumatic um, in any way. So thank you for that. And I did want to go into the book and you you talked a little bit already about the reactions of your family. And it looked like for the most part, your parents, your adoptive parents were supportive of your book and and, and, um, understanding. I know your father passed away before before you were able to publish it. Is that correct? Um, now, so I just wanted to know how those conversations went down when you discussed the book as you were talking about, and even with your sister, your uh, biological sister, how did all those conversations go? Yeah, so the first time, I mean, I started telling everybody that I was thinking about writing a book when it was like, I'm like getting a proposal together. It's going to go out on submission. It was very hard for me to believe it was going to sell. So like, I was like, you know, I don't know. It may happen. It may not. Um, so I like take it with a grain of salt, but like, I'm thinking about this and everyone like, you know, I mean, I say gave me their blessing, but that's a little too reductive. They were basically like, okay, like it's your life. (laughs) My mom was my adopted mom. She was like, you know, as long as you don't write anything bad about us. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, it's definitely, it's not going to be like a hit piece. Like that's not the goal here. That wouldn't be satisfying. And it was funny. She also said, God, my mom was hilarious. She was like, like, you're not famous, so, like, who's going to read it, you know, which is, like, another just, like, very mom thing. Um, I think she was picturing, like, you know, the celebrity memoir, right? right and I'm like, right. that's yeah. true. I'm not famous. People do not care about me individually. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, but we talked about it. So, I, I basically, again, this goes back to my no surprises rule, but I, you know, even before I sold it, I wanted them to know it was a possibility. Mm-hmm. I told them when I sold it. I told them when I was working on it. And then it was like a lot of silence for a while because like it's not very interesting to talk about how you're struggling with your manuscript. And so um, (laughs) I think I brought it up again with everybody, you know, like they'd ask every now and then. But I mostly just like when I'm actually working on something, I don't like to let people in. Like I'm like, you'll know about it when it's published or like if I want to show you a draft beforehand. And that's what I did. Like when I had a full, like a full complete draft that my editor was also like, this is good. Like that's when I showed it to my family and was just like open comment reading period, share all your thoughts and feelings with me. (laughs) So, I mean, that's, that's kind of how that went. My, um, 
my so my biological sister like her story comes into this so much there's a lot I share that's like really specific and personal like about her and mm-hmm. I I told I told her I was like you you're the one who gets veto power like this is so personal um if there is anything you want taken out no questions asked we'll take it out mm-hmm. and so I mean she didn't ask me to take anything out but I I absolutely would have that was just really important to me um it was like a little bit different, like with my birth father, with my adoptive parents, like I would have had a conversation with them about stuff they really objected to. But I mean, first of all, I didn't have to because no one strongly objected, which was great. That's awesome. But also like, I mean, this goes back to like, I don't know, there's this like great Lucille Clifton line. It's like, it's from a poem. And she says like, people want me to remember their memories, but I keep remembering my own. I might've mangled that somewhat, but I mean, a memoir is, it is, it's a book. It's a work built on memories and it it is so personal. Like my mother and I might remember, say like a certain thing differently. Um, And when we do, or when she's not sure, or when I'm not sure, I try to acknowledge that in the text. Like Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of those signals and saying, I think this, my mother says this, or, you know, (laughs) neither one of us can totally remember, but like, this is what we think happened. Like, I actually Mm -hmm. like that, Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, like it doesn't necessarily mean I would like take it out. So right. it was a different kind of negotiation, but, um, but no one actually asked me to remove anything. You know, I think my parents were like, you got this year wrong. And like, so I changed the year. <laughs> uh, and my, my sister thought of a couple of things too, that like, she had told me that like, it turned out, you know, maybe I, I forget what exactly it was like sort of minor corrections, but, mm-hmm. but nobody, nobody like quibbled with anything like, you know, in terms of like content. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hope that the other people in the story, especially like my sister and my parents, like they do feel um, that it's true and that it like honors them because that was Mm -hmm. something that I really wanted to do. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, it's like, I just kind of wanted them to feel like real and to feel Mm -hmm. fully human. And I, and for people to have empathy with them and not just me. And Mm -hmm. I figured if I could do that, then then the book would be maybe doing them justice as well. Um, right. But like, this is going to look different for everybody, of course, writing, writing personal mm-hmm. stories. It was just kind of like how I approached it because, mm-hmm. because I, you know, I am in touch with my family because these relationships are really important to me. And because I also wanted to tell the truth and tell mm-hmm. my truth, um, right. you know, how to do that and how to negotiate that when your story overlaps with other people's lives. Right. And you did a great job of intertwining those stories. It was very beautiful and it flowed so well um, that it didn't take it out. Like for so many stories, when it does that, it kind of takes you out. You're like, what, what just happened? Where, where am I? But for your story, it was perfect. It kind of just was a beautifully uh, fleshed out, threaded story together. So it was amazing. But I do want to ask also, because your uh, biological father was a, is a writer, as well as well, yeah. an academic. Did you actually talk to him about your book? Did he read it as well? Yeah, it's, such a, it's just such a kick that my birth father turns out to be a writer and like mm-hmm. not just a writer, but like primarily an essayist, like writing nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And he's told me, he's like, you get this from me, you know? And I, I think he's probably <laughs> right because uh, like nobody in my adoptive family, you know, is a writer. Right. Anyway, it's, it's just interesting. But but yeah, so he, he, I did, I told him at the same time I told like my sister and my, my adoptive parents. Um, and then I sent all of them the manuscript. I might've sent it to my sister like a week ahead of the others, but like around the same time. So everyone mm-hmm. had a chance. 
my birth father, you know, he's Korean and he's fluent in English, but it's not his first language. And so right. like he read it. Okay, God, first of all, I think my adoptive parents took forever to read it. And I was getting, <laughs> I was getting increasingly anxious the longer they held right. on to it. I was finally, I was like, it'd been like four or six weeks. I hadn't really heard. I was like, you know, what do you think? Like, I know it's like probably a lot to read, but it's not like war and peace. It's like, you know, it's just not that long. Like, can we talk about it, please? Right. right. <laughs> but uh, so he actually took much longer uh, than they did even. And so like, mm-hmm. I did hear from him. He, again, didn't ask me to change anything. He said he was proud. Um, I know it was like a difficult thing for him to read it at points. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, out of everyone, he's probably... I don't know. I think both he and my biological sister, I think they understood really like almost more than anybody why, like why I wanted to write it down. Just like why that felt very important. Um, You know, again, this is something that he does himself. And so I don't know, like, I just think that part of it made sense to him. Like, whereas like in my adoptive family, I think there, there was and still is in some corners, this like whole question of like, why in the world would you? And like, I don't think that's a question to the Korean side. I think like, because both my father and my sister um, love to write and like, that's Mm -hmm. how they remember and how they honor certain memories. I, I just think, I think they kind of instinctively understood that. Right. I love that. Um, so I also wanted to ask, because I know as a person who is very open about adoption, for myself as well, I get a lot of questions. I get a lot sure. of people coming to me. I'm also a social worker, so I have that kind of... You are actually an my, expert. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. not in adoption, but in child uh, stuff. But uh, that sounded really professional, didn't it? Child stuff. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's how professional I am. Um, <laughs> This is why I'm no longer in social. I'm just playing. Um, but you, <laughs> like, you have now kind of touted as the expert. Um, in oh, a way, do you feel like this is something that is a fairly heavy responsibility since this is not just something that you researched or something that you've studied. This is your, actually your life that you're basing your uh, conversations on, your expertise on, I guess, um, that you continually have to keep sharing. Do you feel like it's kind of just a weight that's a really good question. And no one's ever actually asked me that before. Like, I forget, I forget when it was, but like at some point, I think like a year or two ago, like right around the time the book was actually coming out, like there was a fellow adoptee and I think she said something to me, like, how does it feel to be like basically the spokesperson? And I was like, (laughs) I mean, I felt really uncomfortable. And then I was like, Oh God, is that what adoptees think I'm trying to do? Like, I'm really not, (laughs) I don't think I have the authority or the right, you know, Mm. as I've tried to state like over and over in a way that I hope doesn't sound like dodging responsibility, but like I, I, I can't and don't want to like speak for like, I mean, really any adoptees, but myself. And then you balance that against like the fact that like we are underrepresented, like to some Mm -hmm. degree, anyone who reads my book will think that like my experience is, I mean, at least somewhat representative of a lot of us. So like what, what's my responsibility there? Um, I knew when I wrote it, I'd be kind of feeling some of this pressure, like the rep sweats at the same time, like I had written other things about adoption before and I'd gotten Mm -hmm. feedback and I'd gotten questions and I felt like, again, like just much more prepared for that than I would have say 10 years earlier. Um, And like in terms of some of the emails I get from people, like the one that you referenced earlier, you know, people saying I'm ungrateful or saying that like they feel sorry for my adoptive parents, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it gets, I mean, I've gotten worse. That would have like destroyed me 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
I mm-hmm. don't enjoy them now, but I am able to kind <laughs> of like, I wouldn't say shrug them off, but mm-hmm. the vast majority of much more positive feedback is like, first of all, you know, like it sort of outweighs all that. Hearing from right. adoptees means like everything to me. And I probably hear from like a couple adoptees a week still. Mm-hmm. So like, that's really meaningful. I don't regret putting the story out there. And I guess I don't feel too much pressure because to me, I've always felt like I'm just telling my story. It's only right. representative of me and my family. Like every adoptee is an expert on their own like experience. You know, they're the expert, they're the authority. Mm-hmm. And that's why we need so many more stories, right? But that's also why the pressure's kind of off of me because like, mm-hmm. maybe that's a cop out, but like, I just, I've never felt, maybe some people view me differently, but I've never assumed like or accepted like that responsibility. I really, mm-hmm. this is like, this is like the beauty and the like power of memoir is that it is mm-hmm. so personal. Like you're gesturing at something more universal, hopefully. But at the end of the day, I can really only tell my own experience. Right. And so, no, I don't feel it's a burden. I feel really privileged. I feel really, you know, lucky to have gotten to, to tell the story at all. Mm-hmm. And I feel so, so grateful whenever I hear, especially from like fellow adoptees that the book meant something to them, you know, but I, I appreciate that. But I truly, I don't really think of myself as like a spokesperson <laughs> any, any more than like every single one of us who ever talks about it in any public way is turned into a right. kind of ambassador for, for the experience. Right. Like, you know, as you mentioned yourself, um, right. if people know they're going to ask and like, right. like I wrote about in the book, I was only like 22 and these prospective adoptive parents were asking me right. like, should we adopt? Like, is it going to be okay? You know, it didn't, I hadn't written a book yet. I hadn't written anything about adoption, right. but like I was still in that position. So, I mean, we all kind of share that just by having this experience. Yeah. I will say, yeah, my, well, not my first, but one of the experiences that I remember clearly was in college when I was asked to talk to a family who were considering it. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. What? Um, and of course, that's before I realized all the things that I needed to figure out my own self. And then living in a world where I was a social worker and I saw the impact of foster care as well as um, some of the faulty systems that happen within foster care and adoption. But yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing where you become like, oh, well, this is your life. So that means you know everything, correct? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, they started with us from such a young they age, do. though. They do. As soon as people start to notice you look different from your right. parents. Like, if anything, I got fewer questions in college because my parents were not around. Right. right. But, I mean, I, in a way, like, we're sort of turned into these little spokespeople, like, <laughs> at a very young age. We are. Uh, we are. Transracial adoptees mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's right there. <laughs> like, and people really will just kind of, like, ask whatever. Right. It's kind <laughs> of that whole, like, ownership of you've let that, you've put it out there. So, therefore, now... We can ask you yeah. whatever we want <laughs> type of level. Yeah. And yeah, it has occurred to me too. Like if people are really curious, maybe if they read my book, they will not send <laughs> the next eight-year-old adoptee they meet. I will say, like, yeah, a few of the, the questions I've heard in interviews, I'm like, did you not read her book? Because she kind of already <laughs> answered that question. Just, people are busy. They can't read everything. <laughs> <laughs> we just want you on the show, but not actually read the book. So here you go, which I'm sure has <laughs> happened many a times. But yeah, also, I did want to ask, um, kind of in reference to the book, you talk about a scene where you first meet your sister, Cindy, and uh, we talk about shopping and cooking food and, and making recipes. One of the things for me, as an actual person who lived in Korea till I was six, 
um, six, seven. And like, I have a lot of memories about food. And I know that's not necessarily your story, but kind of like, it seemed like you had a moment of bonding with your sister talking about food. Do you now have a favorite Korean dish or do something that you two talk about or make together or any of that? I know that's a weird question. I love food. No, it's okay. I'd have to think about it. It's hard to pick a favorite. I've liked every Korean dish I've ever tried. And especially my sister's because it's like home cooking and Mm -hmm. she made it for me. That sounds amazing. She makes like very good everything. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I'm trying to think. I don't know if I have like a clear favorite, but like every time I eat Korean food, even if it's just at a restaurant, it reminds me of her Mm. and it's very comforting. And like, it's not the same as like growing up in a Korean family where I ate it all the time, learned how to prepare it myself. Like it always, there's a strong like childhood association, but it is like a very strong association with her. And we still go to like the closest Asian grocery whenever we're together, which like sadly hasn't been for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, we'll always like do at least one day where there's a big shop and then like a big dinner. Mm -hmm. She made Korean food for me. Like the day that my book published, I was, I was staying with her in Portland and um, I was just like, this is like amazing. (laughs) Like, I don't know. So I don't think it's like the same as it is like for a lot of other people, but I do. I do really associate it with like her and with family, just like not quite with like memories, childhood or home. Yeah, it's like so different. But you're making new memories, which is amazing. We do have more of this conversation for you. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into it. So you said you have two children now? Mm-hmm. 
if you kind of put that in their world as well, like bringing that kind of culture to them. I know you had referenced your daughter wanting to learn Korean um, and trying mm-hmm. to become more a part of that culture. Has that been a big part of their growing up, I guess? Yeah, it hasn't been as big as I would have liked it to be, honestly. I think it's just hard, like, being adopted. I feel like I was always starting from, like, so far behind that it's, like, just— it's not like I have, like, a goal of, like, peak Korean. That, like, when I get there, I'll just, like, feel (laughs) it. and like I really Korean now. Right. Like, I think I'll always feel just a little bit shaky Mm -hmm. in that identity, and it does. It Like, it is harder to pass on just because of that, like, total cultural separation. I mean, that said, like, I do enjoy times when, like, my daughter and I will, like, you know, practice Korean or, like, make, we'll try to make food together. Like, I'm not very good at it, but, you know, like, there are, and she really likes, and she also likes cooking with my sister. Mm-hmm. So, like, when my sister is here, like, it's, it's great to have someone who knows what they're doing. Um, I mean, it is a part of their heritage, and they're, I think they're very proud of it, mm-hmm. you know? And when I think about, like, what it means for them to have connections to other parts of their culture, I mean, in a way, they're more connected to Korean and, I guess, maybe, like, the Lebanese part of their um, culture because of things like food, Mm -hmm. um, which is so, I mean, not that you can, like, reduce a culture to its food, but it's just so, I mean, it's so wonderful to share and to pass on. Food is a whole impact. You can hold on to that after you've lost so many other things. Mm-hmm. I think, like, they do identify with that. And I know my, my older daughter especially, like, is much more aware of things, strongly identifies as, like, you know, as Asian-American, as Korean, as not white. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think their their understandings are definitely still evolving. Right. And I try not to speak too much about, like, their personal, like, right. how they identify. I mean, that's their story to tell. But I, I do think, I mean, I know it's, like, part of their life and probably... More so than it would have been, like, if I hadn't searched. And so, in that sense, it's not, like, mission accomplished. It's just, like, you know, that's, like, one more thing I think about. And they have these people in their lives, too, like my sister, like their cousin, um, you know, who they wouldn't have had otherwise. And that's, you know, those relationships are important for so many reasons. Yeah, I love that. But, yeah, you did say something about identity. And, actually, I just posted recently on my own Twitter (laughs) <laughs> I'm so cool. I'm not. Um, about the fact that when I was, as I'm reading your book, I'm having to unravel a lot, not just with the book, but just my whole life in trying to figure out my identity. Again, since honestly, even though beforehand, yes, racism is always there. I've always known I'm a different race. I've always known that I've been the only white kid. Um, not that's how I try again. Only Asian kid <laughs> in a very white community. Only person of color in a very white community as well growing up um, and understanding that, I had a lot of things to deal with and fighting so hard as a child to fit in and assimilate that I had to almost, and it wasn't because of anybody else other than my own insecurity. It was like hating myself for being a person of color, for being a girl that was not wanted, you know, in this time frame or in this culture and then trying to grow up and trying to figure out which place do I sit, which way do I go, you know? Yeah. And one of the things that I had this conversation and someone said to me, you're like, wow, it's like a double imposter syndrome. And she's, I'm like, what? She's like, not only are you trying to prove that you're Asian and you don't know if your Asian community will accept you, you're also trying to prove you're not Asian, too Asian for the white community at one point in time. So they'll, you know, that model minority can be a part of your identity, such my identity. Yeah. Um, so... On that, have you ever had that experience as well, like trying to figure out, and how have you gone through it or have you been able to go and pass that? 
Yeah, I don't know if there's any getting past it, which I hope is not like real discouraging to people. But like, I, by that I just mean like it'll always be part of your experience. Even if like you get to a point where, I don't know, you've done the work or you're at peace with it or like you've moved beyond right. trying to like appease any other like individual or group of people. I, I just think like you carry that with you, mm-hmm. like that memory. And um, I think it's so hard to see when you're in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. Like I probably, if I were still living in my like very white hometown, mm-hmm. I don't know how much harder it would have been to do this unpacking to figure it out. I don't know if I ever would have been able to because like the white by default framework was just, I mean, that was just like my day to day. Like I had to be removed from it and experience something else to like look back and even begin to like unpack the impact Mm -hmm. and to think about like ways, like the scars I carried, the ways it was like, you know, harmful, um, you know, the things that were often nobody's fault, Mm -hmm. but just like a way of, how I experienced the world because I was the only one for so many years. Mm-hmm. I've definitely, I've said before, I think that to some people, transracial adoptees, and let's be honest, Asian American adoptees, because of the model minority myth, I think in some ways we are like, to some white people, like the ultimate in like accessibility in terms of like people of color. Like right. by that, I mean like we're just so easily, if they can relate to anybody, they can relate to us right. because, you know, because model minority, because we grow up in white families, like we're socialized in these ways because like, because there is a lot of assimilation at work. Um, and you've got that proximity to whiteness, which is not the same as having white privilege right. ourselves, but like there is definitely like some, and I've never really succeeded in figuring it out for myself, but there is like some associated privilege, like in just in terms of the, the proximity to whiteness mm-hmm. and like having that comfort. Mm-hmm. I mean, the flip side is it can also like make you really unsure of yourself as like, a Korean or Asian American, mm-hmm. right? And I've, there were definitely like years, really not so much now, but like, you know, I can think of years where like an all white room would have felt like way more comfortable to me, mm-hmm. say, than like an Asian American room. And, you know, God, not that those are the only two races, but you know what I'm saying? Right. Like for the purposes of my upbringing and identity, right. like those were the two things I was caught between. Mm-hmm. And there were many years where like I would have not like wanted to be white even, but like that room would have felt more comfortable. Right. Like I would have felt like I knew how to handle myself. Right. So I mean, this is a very long-winded way of saying like, I think it's just ongoing, mm-hmm. like um, the work of like processing and dealing with that and thinking about what it means. And, you know, like figuring out too, like, because we're not the only people in the room, like what does solidarity look like? Like what is required of us, mm-hmm. like given our positioning and our proximity to whiteness? And like whatever comfort we have or don't have with it. Like, I mean, that's like, that's like taking it a step further. But before you can even think about like what, what solidarity looks like as like an adopted Asian person in this country, you know, you have to think, you have to have already done the work of like examining how, how that's affected you Mm -hmm. and your, your like worldview and your biases and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating, and it's all really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's so many things. Obviously, I've made this my show right now. <laughs> As I'm asking all of the questions, and I'm like, let me ask you this. Um, but I did have one more, and then, Annie, I promise I'm done, uh, because I do want to come back to uh, the bond between you and your sister and just how important it is that we are able to see that type of bond, not only that fact that you guys reconnected, in what seemed like an impossible moment to connect and finding a kinship and such a closeness. Um, Just can you talk about your relationship and how it has, obviously, there's a lot of healing in that and what that looked like for you? Yeah. um, I mean, 
I think like a lot of adoptees, when I used to imagine like, maybe I'll search for my birth family someday, maybe we'll connect. I was always picturing like my birth parents. I mean, I was, I've also always wanted siblings. So like, it's kind of weird in a way I didn't think about birth siblings as much as like a, a real possibility, but I didn't. Like, I was just so focused on like, you know, I mean, they're literally the people who made you. Mm-hmm. So I was, I guess I was sort of focused on that, but the reunion with my sister was just so unexpected mm-hmm. in so many ways. Like it was not, I thought of it as like an unlooked for gift. Like it really, it was such a surprise to me that like, that this would be, I don't know, the greatest, the greatest thing that really came out of that whole experience um, for both of us, you know, and I, in terms of healing, like I also had always thought like of it as kind of like, maybe if there was any healing at all, it would be like in me finding answers to questions I'd always had. And in my birth parents, like knowing that I was okay Mm -hmm. and like maybe not having to like regret their choice if they had ever regretted Mm -hmm. it. I mean, this is also, I now know like a really simplistic way of looking at it, but like, that's what I was thinking. Like if we're able to like offer each other any like closure or healing at all, like surely that's what it will be. I had not thought again, like what, like what siblings could like need um, if they were in the picture. Um, like I wouldn't presume to say like I've healed my sister and it, it's even like maybe a little too reductive to say she's healed me, but like we both really needed each other. Mm -hmm. Like we both really needed for various reasons, like that kind of family connection, that kind of like, like support, Mm -hmm. uh, and mutual aid. Um, just like knowing that someone was going to be in your corner, no matter what, like I get lost in cliches sometimes when I talk about it, (laughs) but like, I mean, I think we both needed that, that type of relationship. And, um, it wouldn't have occurred to me that I could provide that for somebody. Right. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I figured like if I had siblings, they would have been fine without me. Like they'd been without me their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Like the, in Cindy's case, she had no idea I was alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I, I don't know. I, at so many points I was like, are you sure? Like, why, like, why are you wasting time with me? <laughs> like in a way, because like what, I didn't know what I had to really offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really only after like meeting her in person and talking about like what our families and our upbringings were like and like thinking about her life then, you know, just like I started to wonder like if there was something that she needed that I could provide too. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, that's how it started. We're several years on now, let's see, like at least 12 years mm-hmm. and we're, we're still really close. I miss her a lot. I don't know when I'm going to get to see her right. because she lives across the country. Right. Um, but you know, up until like this year, we tended to see each other at least once. Sometimes le- we were lucky and like, it was twice a year. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to even express it in words sometimes. Like, I guess I'm not that good of a writer, <laughs> <laughs> but like, she really is in so many ways, just like this steadfast, um, presence. And like, she's so strong and she's so compassionate. She really is like, like my hero. Mm-hmm in a lot of ways. Um, so I just feel really fortunate that like this thing that I never would have expected to come out of my search is what, what came out of it. Mm -hmm. And not just for me, but again, like for my kids, you know, she's just there, you know, she's just there, their aunt Cindy, like they have always known her. They don't remember not knowing her. And like, actually like, I don't know, both for, for both my niece and, and my kids, like, I think they like to like ask questions and hear about the story again, Mm -hmm. because like, I mean, for them, it's just the way it is. It's always been this way. They've always had each other and like us in their lives. But like, I think it's interesting to them how like it wasn't necessarily going to be that way. Mm-hmm. Like if we hadn't both taken steps to kind of put our family, our family back together in this way, like, you know, they wouldn't know each other. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. 
I don't know. Like I, I'm definitely rambling now. No, I, I love it. Yeah. It my heart feels so big. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just feel really, again, just really, really, um, I'm just really thankful that like, that's what happened because it was not something I ever would have, yeah. you know, ever would have expected. And I love that you have a support system and through all of this became such a beautiful story of bonding. Um, it was beautiful. Like I said, it was written so well that I was just like, oh, that's fantastic. It was just like, that's such a good <laughs> fiction. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. I mean, and thank you for reading it. I also am conscious of how like, you know, I, I sometimes feel like adoption stories hit really close to the bone for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. I kind of struggle more with it sometimes in fiction, like where it's like a plot device. Right. I sometimes do better if it's nonfiction. But anyway, like I, I appreciate you spending time with it mm-hmm. because I just feel like there's an extra emotional investment. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe there's an extra like reward too with if you identify with any part of it. I did. I felt seen and I loved that. Uh, even though the story was different, there were still like parts of this that was like, yes. And and you, for the lack of better words, like not necessarily a happy ending, but things that made sense and coming together for you does feel somewhat fulfilling for me as a person who doesn't have that open <laughs> portion to my, or that insight to that half of my life. So it was really nice to see, as well as being able to, again, feel represented. Like I told Annie a while ago, one of the only books that I'd ever been able to read that had anything to do with anything about me outside of like having at least a Chinese person in the Babysitter's Club was uh, Just As Long As We're Together by Judy Bloom. I remember that book. An adopted, yeah, as an yes. Asian girl. Um, and it made me feel like, oh, wow. Oh, look. There's someone else who they're treating as a normal child Mm -hmm. (laughs) having, you know, issues as an adolescent. This is beautiful. So to see more and more is so important and it's so wonderful to see. And yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was hesitant because I was afraid of the things that it may bring out in me. And I've had to work out so much as a social worker in this field trying to advocate for kids um, who are in foster care and such. But seeing this story, um, not only because... Yes, transracial adoption is is different from the adoption within the U.S. And we know this, um, not just within the U.S., but within the cultures and what it looks like. And again, what it has this whole fetishized fairy tale behind it. And that's what you see as representations. I'm like, oh God, what's wrong with me <laughs> if I'm not that perfect story yeah. that came out like that? But to see something that's like, yeah, this is the reality. It's not all bad. It's not all great. And this is how it became. It was a beautiful life to see that wasn't mine that made sense. So thank you for writing and thank you for coming on. I'm not going to lie. Again, I've been so excited and kind of nervous. <laughs> since we've been emailing no I really appreciate the invitation yeah and thank you um Annie sorry (laughs) (laughs) no no this is great I'm so sorry no, this is so great. This is so great. And you you touched on like all of the things I wrote down. Yeah, so, this is when we were trying to write our little outline on how we were going to talk about the book. This is going to be perfect. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I guess I would just like to say that I, as someone who does write, I've never considered writing a memoir. But as a podcaster, we sometimes experience that sort of vulnerability of people know a lot about us but we don't yeah. know them. And so I almost feel a little strange asking you personal questions about your life, even though you you wrote the book. Um, but I did appreciate um, how you painted the complexity of family and you talked about 
um, like the origin stories we often tell ourselves and then questioning that and what that meant for you. Um, Because I do think that even um, my dad wasn't adopted, but he wasn't raised by his parents. Uh, He wasn't officially adopted. And I didn't even know who my real grandparents were until 12. I I thought my other grandparents, they weren't related to me and I didn't know it. But like there are these stories we tell and having to come to terms with just how complicated your feelings can be with family and why you tell them. Um, So uh, I was, it was lovely to see that um, nuance and complexity expressed. Uh, And I don't know if there's any uh, piece of that that you feel like you can speak to or you want to expound on. In terms of like writing like a personal story for like public consumption, you mean? Yeah. And just like the kind of origin stories we tell ourselves. Oh yeah. I'm obsessed with those. Like I, um, I don't know. We we can all think about those stories in our families that have been told so many times. It's like you might have you probably have like no memory of it yourself. Like probably many of them took place before you were born. But you're just like, yep, that was like established fact and like <laughs> like there's just no questioning. That stuff is like bedrock. Um and I I when I was writing the book, I was thinking about how like questioning that can feel like questioning someone's religion, you know, or like they're very like just it's, it's such a deeply held personal belief. And yet that I think if you're going to think about adoption like any family topic with real complexity you have to build in a little bit of space for questioning those like like the family lore and for like thinking about the people who aren't there or whose voices maybe just aren't the loudest like that's the other thing i've noticed in families like without naming names but like i'm sure (laughs) i'm sure we can all think of people in the family who like it's sort of like their take on things ends up being the dominant take uh, or like the people whose opinions are like kind of the loudest and the strongest, but that doesn't mean other people aren't having like wildly different experiences or might not have different opinions. And so, I mean, that's just like a factor in every family, whether or not adoption's involved, whether or not there's something like dramatic or whether there's estrangement, you know, there's always, there's always other perspectives. So I mean, I like to think about all that personally. I find origin stories fascinating because they are literally what make us. And like they form our worldviews in a lot of ways. And yet like so much of the, like the biggest questions and like the hardest work and the most interesting writing also comes from like when you start to reconsider like those long held truths. I mean, I just, I love that stuff. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, I like to read it like beyond, even beyond memoir, like the sort of like themes I look for in general. I look for it in stories that I edit and publish. I just... Like, I always love to see a writer asking those big questions or, like, challenging, like, a dominant narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where a lot of the best, like, the best stories wind up coming from. Annie's writing more notes (laughs) for her fan fiction. I write other things in fan fiction. I don't yes. know. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> What's your fandom? Do you, do you want me to, you don't have to say. No, 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 no. I write, um... Primarily Star Wars, original trilogy, okay. and Harry Potter. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And cool. right now, the one I'm writing on right now is 250 pages long. Okay. So. And all their stuff is so tragic. So tragic. <laughs> it, is. it is. That's what I've discovered. <laughs> yeah. She'll always come back with, oh my God, the things I've done to my characters. I'm so sad. I feel guilt about it sometimes. I feel legitimate guilt. Um. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. I just wanted to push that in. Yeah, I always yeah. Love telling people your your hobbies. 
Thank you. Thank you. I'm proud of your hobby. Yes, I'm sure it's not that embarrassing me at all. Not at all. I'm proud of what you do because I could not do it. I've written many of things and they're all short stories because I'm like, and I'm done. Short stories are so hard though. Like just the, um, I'm like, how do you do it? How do you like create? See, I don't. I can't do beyond that because I'm like, I'm done now. It's such a closed right, right. system. I'm just yeah. like, how do you have the arc and the characterization and the setting? I mean, the basic building blocks of the story in a very, very small space, knowing you don't get anymore. Like, that's it. Yeah. I think that's actually think- magic. Uh, I feel like I know writers best when I can get their short stories like that. I think that's why I love like Southern Gothic because a lot of those writers start off with small essays. And I love that depth because I like that mystery that it unfolds. Anyway, this has gone to a completely different world. I'm sorry, Annie. <laughs> no, 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 no. questions no. that I just cut you off of. <laughs> no, this relates. Great segue. Um, do you have any projects that you're working on that you're excited about? Oh, gosh. I, I mean, I'm always like working on like essays here and there. I've like started unfinished <laughs> novels and I have sold my second book. So I'm working on another work. It's, I mean, I keep calling it like a memoir and essays. I think it'll feel, I think it'll feel um, quite different in form than all you can ever know. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be like essays revolving around like grief and class. And my, I mean, I actually sold it before my mother, my adoptive mom passed away earlier this year, just three months ago. And it's strange to be writing about grief in the midst of this. This loss I wasn't actually anticipating when the book sold. But I mean, I think I have a lot of work to do before. I think it'll just take time. Um, but that is the next thing. It's been sold. So I do have to deliver it. Um, so yeah, it'll, it'll be a while in coming, but that's what's next. Very exciting. Um, to read the book, not uh, the process. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, and yeah, you, you have, uh, I've read a few essays of you as you were talking about um, writing uh, during grief. Yeah. And what would, because I think people, as you talk about it, it is cathartic for people as well as there's many writers who are going through some really tough times, whether it's uh, grief of a loved one, like you said. What is your um, advice on that and how do you care for yourself at the same time? Yeah, I feel much less qualified to give advice on this because I feel like I'm not, I, it's honestly just been really hard um, mm. because I don't have, like with the first book, I had several years of removal from it mm. and this is all just really fresh and it's really raw. And in some ways, like that means the emotions are easy to access and in other ways, it could just feel like a flood sometimes. I can, mm-hmm. I find it sometimes very overwhelming. So like in terms of taking care of yourself, like I mean, I do. I give myself permission to take breaks, sometimes quite long ones. I've recognized how much of this book will probably like take form when I'm not writing. So like when I, when I do step back and go for a long walk or like really think or look through photos or just like remember my parents, um, like I think a lot of, a lot of the work of this book will, it'll have to be done like while I'm not writing, which is not, which is not to say writing isn't still the job because it's the job. but I'm learning as I get older how much of writing is everything else that you do too. I mean, and specifically the time that you take to just think and just be um, and ask yourself questions and like, you know, try to answer them. So much of that work is interior, you know, or you could actually do it with friends and family, but it, it's so like, it takes place away from the computer screen. And then mm-hmm. hopefully you go back and you've got like a clearer vision and you've got more focus and you're feeling replenished and you can tackle like the next, the next thing. But it is, it's a really different experience from writing the first book and which was fast. I mean, I wrote it in like 10, 11 months. 
I think this will take longer and I think it will be harder. I joked about this on Twitter recently. I was like, I find it really hard to revisit things I've written before. And like, eventually I developed kind of a deep loathing for everything I wrote, like, let's say more than three years ago. So I'm not saying the book sucks. Please buy the book and read it. But what I mean is like, (laughs) as a writer, I do feel like I always feel like my best work's ahead. Like I have to actually believe that in order to keep writing because it is hard. So, um, yeah, I mean, I keep telling myself like, this is difficult, but like, if you can do it, like, I think it will mean something. And I think, you know, I hope it can be, I hope it just builds on like what I've done. And again, you always just hope it means something to someone. Where can people find you? I'm at Nicole S.J. Chung on both Twitter and Instagram. Yes, and that's how we found you online. Um, and yes, you should also, if you haven't already read her book, All You Can Ever Know is not just for adoptees, obviously. It is a beautiful story about relationships, love, finding yourself, childhood, children, all the things, all the good things in there. Well, I'm really thankful to you both for like reading the book and taking the time. Um, it was my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, and you. now you are also one of the people that I will call a close friend because this is what I do. <laughs> I use the show to make friends with people. Story, <laughs> that story checks out. I think that's fine. <laughs> I'm going to tell everyone. This is my close friend, Nicole. Yep. You yep. can read her book. We've really Jesus. bonded. We've talked for like a while. I think I think it's a solid bond. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this very special edition yeah. of Book Club. So thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us. I cannot say how much this meant to me on a personal level. And and we do want to eventually come back and revisit the conversation of uh, females and women, uh, baby girls being adopted more so than boys and sons in this whole conversation of why are sons preferred over daughters. And I know this has been in a conversation before in our podcast Previously, I know the controversy of transracial adoption has already been talked about, but kind of digging deeper of this value of, you know, male over female and then the complexity of adoption, how it gets intertwined. So we do want to talk about that too, uh, for those who are like, wait, this is not specific to <laughs> feminism. Get it. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it was such a personal thing for me and um, having her as a writer who is a strong mother, uh, sister, daughter, in playing this whole uh, scenario, her life out for the public has been a privilege to discuss with her. So again, thank you, Nicole, for being a part of this. For those who have stuck around and listened to the whole thing, I hope you did because it was really fun for us to do, for for me specifically. Thank you for listening and uh, kind of digging into what it is to see in this type of life and childhood. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, cannot recommend it enough. It did occur to me that, like, I don't know if this made the final cut, but you kept bringing up my fan fiction. (laughs) (laughs) And she, Nicole, asked, what what fandoms are you writing? Do you write? I was like, Harry Potter and Star Wars, which are both, like, use adoption Mm -hmm. um, as kind of a plot point. And you were what you helped me understand that better for my fan fiction, Samantha, (laughs) when it came to Leia and Luke. But yeah, yeah. So just in thinking about that, how often we do see that. Intermedia. Um, but yes, yes. Uh, so thanks again to Nicole. If you have any recommendations for our next book club, we are all ears. 
Uh, thanks to anyone, to everyone who's already sent them. Um, we are keeping a list. We do keep track, but keep mm-hmm. them coming. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com or you can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions.